Hey everybody, I'm Neil Blackman, the host of Florida Basketball Hour. Thanks for uh, listening. We would ask, as always, that you go to iTunes and um, or Apple Podcast and subscribe or give us a rating. You can also uh, throw us a heart on Spotify. Uh, we're on Stitcher. We're on uh, Google. Uh, we're on you know pretty much any platform you want. I think there was another one that that we got added to this week. Just somebody requested on Twitter, and the service actually did it for us. So there's lots of ways to find us. We really appreciate you listening, and, and we have a lot to talk about from Florida's win over A and M and a huge resume game Saturday at TCU, the first of five consecutive massive resume opportunities for the Gators. So without any further ado, uh, let's do it. All right, everybody, I'm back with uh, Eric Foss at GatorCountry.com. Um, a lot to talk about today, so we'll just kind of start with uh, the the tale of two halves. Florida's uh, electric comeback win over Texas A&M, a game they had to have, a game it didn't look like they'd get, and then uh, what happened, Eric? Well, he caught fire from the three-point line. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> we got the uh, Kayvon Allen that everyone has uh, has kind of wanted for four years now. And uh, Noah Locke just, you know, if anyone was ever questioning his ability to hit shots, which I don't think anyone was before, um, you know, uh, he just really established himself as just an elite shooter. So, uh, yeah, a lot of things went right in the second half. Yeah, pretty amazing that uh, that Florida could defend that terribly for 20 minutes and then I thought outside of just shooting really well um, something Billy Kennedy mentioned was just Florida's defense the first 10 minutes of the second half in particular was just terrific I I mean I just couldn't believe the way Florida was was defending in the first (laughs) half well because it's just something that you know you you and me have talked about is just like um, like Florida's defense has been so consistent. And when you play good defense, a lot of times, you know, that, that kind of, that doesn't slump. And uh, for that to happen against, um, against Texas A&M, uh, that's just crazy. Cause they're not a good offensive team. And um, obviously, you know, they did hit some shots, but it wasn't just them hitting contested jump shots. They were, they were getting really quality looks against Florida. And it just seemed like, it always just seemed like Florida was um, how it like, maybe like one rotation away, if that makes sense. Like it seems like they'd make one good rotation. They'd make a second one, but the third one was just completely non-existence and it meant a layup. And that's, uh, that's kind of the thing, especially when they were playing their full court pressure. Um, it's, it, it kind of only takes one week link for that to fall apart. And it seemed like that was happening over and over again. And then of course there was the shot at the buzzer to end the half that yeah. went in and, uh, which just said a whole lot, but um, at the same time, you just, uh, you knew no team was going to keep, uh, keep shooting that way. And, and uh, you know, for a team that struggles so much to hit three point shots for them to go seven for 11 or whatever they were in the first half, um, you knew they weren't going to do that in the second. And uh, luckily that didn't happen, but also, uh, also Florida caught fire. Yeah. Wendell Mitchell, 25 points. Uh, and, and as you, you already mentioned the, the 32 footer at the, <laughs> into the first half with a man in his face. Uh, but but Florida kind of negligent, not kind of. Florida was negligent in, in rotational defense. And I also thought they, you know, they set up that press to slow people down and they didn't react very well to A&M pushing tempo to start their offense sooner. Like Texas A&M attacked that press. Well, I really think, too, um, you know, a guy that hasn't really, um, you know, hasn't gotten a lot of respect these last couple of years for his team kind of underachieving due to uh, when he had good talents and then not bringing in good talent was was Billy Kennedy. And I mean, watching that first half, uh, given the talent that Texas A&M has, um, I think Billy Kennedy was did an incredible coaching job or whoever, whichever one of his assistants was on the scout for Florida. Because, I mean, he was picking apart Florida's press. And that's something that Michigan State didn't do. That's something that um, that's something that Tennessee didn't do. You yeah. know, Florida's Florida's played a lot of elite, elite offenses um, really tough and, and really locked them down. And, you know, Texas A&M, one of the, 
worst offenses in the power five. Um, you know, they just were absolutely picking apart Florida and seemed to be one step ahead always. Like they, you know, knew where the double teams were coming from and knew where pressure would be coming from. And uh, uh, yeah, so I, I'm honestly giving, uh, giving a lot of credit to Billy Kennedy there. Yeah, no, I mean, one of, one of four programs in the SEC that has been to, uh, sorry, one of three programs in the SEC that has been to the Sweet 16 um, two or more times this decade, along with Florida and Kentucky, Tennessee. Uh, I was going to, I don't know why it's not Tennessee, but then I remembered that they lost a little to Chicago. So uh, they will get there this year and then there will be four, <laughs> but uh, they're not quite there yet. Um but yeah, I mean, they couldn't get past the Sweet 16 with all that high-end lottery talent, and obviously, uh, the best they could do was was uh, a share of an SEC title um, in 2016, and and I think, um, you know, not nearly the same level of talent, but they were ready to play, and maybe we should have seen that coming, I guess, given how embarrassed they had to have been after their performance at home against Missouri. Yeah, they uh, they definitely were hungry, and um, uh, once again, I mean, I, Florida's played, uh, you know, Florida's played a whole lot of that uh, that one two two press and done a whole lot of that, even that one three one kind of trap um, falling back into man this year. And I think that there was, you know, enough film that uh, that Billy Kennedy had had some stuff to work with. And uh, like I said, that first half, he seemed like he was he was one step ahead of everything Florida was doing, and uh, maybe that was luck. Maybe I'm giving Billy Kennedy just way too much credit. Um, but uh, but I'll chalk it up to coaching. Yeah, no, I think it could be a combination of things, right? It can be, you know, it, that oftentimes these things are. There's there's rarely a situation where there's just one answer. And, and I think Florida uh, – I don't think Florida approached the game with enough urgency in the first half. I think they saw maybe this, they peaked ahead like we talked about on the previous show, maybe saw what was on the horizon. They saw what Texas A&M had done against Missouri and, and uh, certainly in the second half. It was sort of a different Florida team. One thing that was interesting was the comments by White that that he uh, lost his temper at halftime, which he doesn't do that much, which kind of led me to believe that maybe this team responds to that. Well, I mean, you wonder <laughs> if uh, you wonder if Noah Locke responds to that, or so. It seems like the young guys do, and obviously they didn't play badly in the in the first half. Um, I think Andrew Nemard had some pretty. Uh, uh, some pretty bad turnovers that were, you know, he was a lot better in the second, but um, it's, it's kind of one of those things. I think that, um, you know, my, Mike White really has, has tried just put everything, but um, uh, it seems like that, um, that kind of utmost encouragement um, really hasn't been working with his group. So maybe yeah. go the opposite way. And, um, you know, I think that maybe, I, you know, I don't think that was the game plan that Mike White had to lose his mind. The, the players kind of forced his hand by, by playing that way in the first half. But um well, hey, you know what I saw in the second half was was Kayvon Allen smiling and laughing, and I don't think I've seen that in in um, you know in four years of watching him play. And uh, what whatever happened in that game from the frustration of of White at halftime, and then um, you know seeing guys like Kayvon Allen laughing on the court in the second half, um, I think that that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean something. It certainly has been a while since we saw the we we haven't gotten a lot of glimpses of the joyful. Cave on Allen that that America saw in the in the Sweet Sixteen, right? So, I don't know. Uh, I, it was good to see, and and you know his numbers in SEC play kind of speak for themselves at, at almost eighteen points a game, and um, and he continues to as he always has, you know, impact the game defensively too with with steals and and as a secondary ball handler. I thought one key to the game was. With the game still tight, Mike White was able to get Andrew Nimhart about four minutes of rest in the second half um, because Kayvon Allen was effective handling the ball and making good decisions with the basketball, making good shot selections. Yeah, and I think that's big. And, and I think for someone like for like Nemhard, um, you know, obviously physically, I, I'm kind of of the belief that, like, I don't think any player can play his best basketball for – 35 or 36 minutes. I just don't think anyone is wired that way. No matter what your conditioning level is, um, you're probably going to be playing better at 30 minutes than, than 35 or, right. or 33 versus 37. So, so anytime you can get a guy like that rest, I think that's great. But I think also for, for Nemhard, I think even the chance for him to take a little bit of a mental break is, is big because, um, you know, as a freshman point guard, he's, uh, that's, 
still kind of searching a lot offensively. I think he's taking in a whole lot of information all the time and he's, uh, he's defending at a high level and, and making a lot of rotations in a defense that has a lot of trapping and a lot of um, just, you know, you have to make a lot of reads. So even just giving him the, a mental break kind of uh, I, I think is pretty big because some of the turnovers he's had the last um these last few games where he's had a couple bad turnovers, I think a lot of it is just kind of like the mental fatigue of being the the point guard of a team that does a whole lot of weird and unique stuff defensively. And then, um, you know, is still searching offensively and relies on him to, to figure a whole lot of things out on the floor in real time. What did you think of Florida's uh, – I mean, Florida seems like they, they had some uh, productive – obviously a productive half with – with playing a little faster sort of transitional offense and, and a little bit higher tempo. Well, the thing that was happening was in that, in that kind of semi fast break, um, uh, just kind of during that transition period, just, uh, uh, it just seemed like Texas A&M was just kind of having trouble matching up a little bit. And it, it led to a lot of those kind of corner threes from Noah Locke or those corner threes for Kayvon Allen, just where, while things were scrambled a little bit. So um, I, yeah, I thought that playing, playing a little bit faster was great just because it got those those kind of early looks um I would have loved to see them playing a little bit faster and, and still looking at the rim a little bit more and I know people might laugh at that in a game that they almost shot 30 or 50 percent from the three-point line but um uh, it just it's kind of like that one article that I that I wrote a little while ago and we talked about on the on the show that the numbers just back up that um you know a half decent look in transition for this team is better than a half decent look um, you know, within the, in the half court. So if they can push the ball and, and maybe get an open three for Kayvon Allen or Noah Locke before the defense gets set, um, I think that might be their, uh, one of their best offenses right now. Yeah. It also gives you an opportunity, I think, with some of their athletic pieces to, to get offensive rebounds and kind of get into lanes while defenses are still getting set and collecting their composure after those, those shots go off. And, you know, Florida's, for, for all their issues, a, a reasonably decent offensive rebounding team. Right. And, um, yeah, obviously that's the other advantage of, of usually if you can get a shot up on the break, usually usually have an offensive rebounding advantage, and, and that helps. Um, the one other thing I will say in response to um, – uh, the playing faster thing that I, I do think, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, you know, Florida played faster and they, they got points. Um, I'll just remind people too that Texas A&M is not a team that turns you over very often. And, and Florida turned the ball over 17 times. And I think that again, that's kind of the, that's the give and take. And if Florida, yeah. Florida had a, you know, a lot of bad turnovers trying to play a little bit faster. So um, versus, you know, a team that took care of the ball really, really well um, earlier in the season. So, um, you know, it's obviously great when, when, th- when three-point shots are falling, but I, I do keep it a little bit in context of, like, you know, Florida turned the ball over 17 times against a team that isn't great at turning you over. So, um, you know, if you have the same effort against a team that, you know, maybe really uh, really is good at turning over, turning over, maybe that's 21 turnovers, and that's, um, <laughs> that's problematic. So <laughs> I just another thing for people to keep in mind, because I think a lot of people are, that have been, you know, yelling for this team to play faster for the last two seasons – um, probably looked at last night as, you know, this is why you play fast. And, you know, to an extent, yes, they got a lot of open looks, um, but a lot of those turnovers are pretty unnecessary. Right. Nope. It's all uh, it's a good point. And it kind of answered the next question, which was, you know, I don't know if Florida found something in transition so much as it worked in that game. <laughs> right. Uh, um, no, go ahead. Oh, no, I will once again, I mean, this, this is a team of a Texas A&M team that also is not very good um, scoring the basketball, um, despite what they did in the first half. So in the second half, I mean, uh, you know, they had a lot of bad misses and a lot of shots going the other way that Florida had numbers. Um, I'm not quite sure that's going to be there against the TCU. And I don't know. I'm not quite sure that's going to be there against Auburn or Ole Miss or, or Kentucky. And, uh, but we'll see. Uh, you wrote an article at, at Gator country uh, about the freshman because we this was the the mark the second game in in 20 years where Florida had started three freshmen they hadn't done that since the the 19 um what was it 1998 1999 team which which featured uh Mike Miller and Udonis Haslow oh right and uh Teddy Dupay a very decorated recruiting class so Florida hadn't uh and Ladarius Halton they, Florida actually started four freshmen for a while uh, that year, and, and Ladarius Halton ended up 
having some pretty significant issues with his knees. Um, in, in a lot of ways, I guess, uh, was, was kind of even more um, well thought of than Dupe, at least out of high school. So it's pretty interesting that that, that was really the, the class that turned things for Billy Donovan and, and he played them right away. And, you know, I think certainly there's an, an argument that long-term this recruiting class and the next one could be the ones that, that turn things for, for Mike White. If, if you're one of the people that thinks that that's what needs to happen, I, I you know, I don't know. Um, but yeah, Florida has a chance to break some records with their freshmen, don't they? They do. And uh, the one thing that uh, when you look at the record books, um, there's a lot of talk about, about Noah Locke being, you know, like um, the way he's shooting for a freshman. And the thing is, when you look at his numbers, you can kind of take the for a freshman off the, just out of the, out of the sentence, because, um, you know, he's really, he's chasing the record for most threes made in a season um, by any Florida Gator, not just a freshman. Um, he's uh, almost certainly going to hit the record for threes made by a freshman. Um, probably with multi, you know a lot of games left in the season, um, but yeah, he's chasing Michael Frazier for uh, for one eighteen. That's the number. Um, that's the number of threes he made in a year. And uh, you know, at, at kind of the current pace Noah Locke is at, he's going to be maybe in the like uh, the one ten range, just at his current rate. And that's um, yeah, that, I kind of project that based on thirty four games played, which is what Florida played last year. Um, certainly they could play more if they, you know, win a couple more games in the SEC tournament and, and, you know, hopefully get into post and postseason play. Um, so that's just one thing that's crazy about Noah Locke is we're not just witnessing an amazing freshman shooting performance. Uh, we're witnessing just one of the best shooting performances by, by a Gator ever. So um, that's pretty special. And, and Andrew Nemhart, um, he's going to be, uh, he's going to be right in the mix to get Nick Calathis's record for, uh, for assists by a freshman. And um uh, he's kind of projected like if uh, if he kind of keeps his current pace, it's probably going to come down to, to the final game or so to see whether he'll uh, he'll reach it. And um, uh, one thing too is uh, you know like uh, for example, he's got so he's projected to maybe get around two hundred and you know two hundred fifteen, two hundred twenty assists this season. Um, the record, um, you know, the record for Chris Chioza was like five hundred seventy one, I think. Now I'm forgetting. I'll have to look again. But um, but that's just the thing is, um, you know, if, if Andrew Nemhart, uh, you know, if he were to be a multiple year Gator, um, you know, would he get it in in two seasons? I I don't think so. If he somehow uh, did end up staying and being a junior, um, he'd almost certainly crush that record. And yeah, um, that's uh, that's pretty special. And I know, you know, the discussion of whether he's a one and done or a two and done or, or anything is probably better served for a podcast where we don't have so much to talk about. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's just it's just it's just crazy to see that this is a this is a freshman group that uh, that really is special. Yeah, and, and you know what? And I, I like that we we get the chance to talk about them a little bit on this show because you know you saw sort of the you saw the value of a couple of things with Nimhard you saw as we discussed the value of getting him a little rest in the second half and and uh I think we saw that that maybe helped his uh his decision making offensively um I don't know if if some of that was just coaching I mean his we, we've talked about the flaws mechanically with his jump shot right now and and I think uh, those are things that will probably incentivize him to stay, at least for his sophomore season. I doubt that – and I think Eric probably agrees with me. I doubt that Florida gets much more than two years out of Andrew Nimhard collegiately. But but I do think they're probably in line to get a second one unless Florida goes on some sort of magical run, which would be great. Um, but usually when you go on those, players leave, particularly star freshman point guards. Um but we also saw Keontae Johnson, who, while not necessarily threatening records, um, I thought played a really, really meaningful role in the victory uh, Tuesday night with, with nine rebounds. Uh, he had uh, just did a little everything. Three steals, had a couple assists, a couple blocks, uh, and then two huge points late in the game. It's just uh, not only did he put up just like a raw total of, of rebounds that's really good with nine. I mean, a bunch of those rebounds were just these these rebounds that were out of his area that he chased down, that he out-jumped guys for. Letter, just rebounds that I don't think anyone else on the team could have gotten. Like, like it was just such unique plays of athleticism that he's the only one that would have got those rebounds. No one else playing those minutes at the four would have gotten. And um, he had that one block shot in the first half where – um, you know, he's just getting bared down on it. He was standing under the hoop. And um, even, even though he was from a, a standstill and didn't have an approach, he just, 
uh, outjumped the guy and swatted it away. And that was another block shot that, uh, you know, Kavarius Hayes could probably make, but uh, not not anyone else on the team. So uh, he's just such a unique skill set within this team with that athleticism. And uh, I just look, you know, at every one of those rebounds, it just seemed like, man, like those are like, that's just found money because there's no one else on the team that could have <laughs> done that. And, um, the, you know, obviously those extra possessions are were valuable and, um, I, yeah, I just think he's played awesome, uh, awesome basketball, and uh, I'm really glad he's starting, and uh, I, I'm glad he's been able to perform at this level. Yeah, I think the coaches have done a nice job with him too. I mean, this is just a common, a common criticism of of this staff sometimes is that people are a little uncertain of of development. I don't think you can say that with Keontae Johnson, even from November. I mean, I think he's improved as a passer and. I think the message that this team, that these, the staff has emphasized to him about, you know, playing with the high motor because he, he has a special athletic skill set. So if he plays hard, and I think he's a smart player, which we've talked about on the last podcast, I think he understands basketball and is just working on technical skills. And I think that's why the staff is like, look, if you play with, with a relentless motor, um, you're going to impact winning, and, and he's done that. Right. And uh, it's it, he pa- the way he passes the ball. I really like um, it was good to see. Like, um, I'm not sure if he took a three the other night against Texas A&M. I think he might have taken one. But I mean, yeah, we even. Yeah, OK, because, yeah, I mean, we even saw him, uh, you know, we saw him knock down some in the previous game. And, uh, you know, if he if he's a guy that can, you know, shoot the occasional three ball and just uh, defend and rebound at a high level that like he's he's a valuable piece. Um, you know, anything above that is is gravy. And, uh, the way that we're talking about that as as a freshman means that he's probably going to become a really really special player um, if he can harness that athleticism to be able to to become more of a, a guy who can beat his man one on one. You know, does he become something like a, like an Admiral Schofield or Grant Williams, just that's so so physical that can get uh, can get the ball at the free throw line and just take one or two bounces and, and lay the ball in with contact. Um, uh, I, you know, he very well could be. So uh, I'm really, really excited for him. And, um, you know, he's a guy with some NBA upside. And I think that if, yeah. he, uh, if he keeps this up, I'm, I'm not even sure he's a, he's a four-year player. And I know some people might, um, uh, might kind of laugh at that, but um, you've got to look at some um, NBA upside a little more than, than even production. And, and he's a guy that I think is probably, probably already turned some heads. Yeah. And I, I like the Schofield comparison a little, a little more than Grant Williams, just because, you know, and, and Grant Williams, I think, should be the front runner for the Wooden Award, and, and he's a marvelous player. And I really do think he's the best, the best college player in the country. I know uh, that's that's my hot take for the show, but but I think uh, you know I, I think Keontae could could develop that that jump shot, and there's just a little more athleticism there. Now he like Grant Williams, Keontae plays much bigger than he is, but Grant Williams doesn't have a 42 inch vertical leap. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Like, I don't know if Grant Williams has a 36 inch vertical leap. <laughs> Not, I right. say that with, with all due respect to, to a guy, again, I think is, is one of the best players in the country. Now, I don't think Keontae at any point in his life went 22 free throws in a row either. So, <laughs> uh, um, so that was shades of. So, Florida had a game with, with Georgia the first year, the, the, the year they won the first national title. And by the way, that's what that performance reminded me of a little last night because this game was in February, whereas last night's was obviously in January. But but Noah had just sort of been coming into his own. People don't remember that he kind of bloomed late that season. Like, it was sort of a February and March phenomenon. And, and the Georgia game was the first time. And I think, I think it's the Florida record. I think Joe Kim hit 18 free throws in a row against Georgia, but I didn't, I didn't look it up to confirm that. But, uh, but that was the game where that Georgia team was pretty good. They had Jarvis Hayes and some other players. And, <laughs> and it was like, yeah, man, maybe Florida's pretty good. And then, of course, they, they go and defend the SEC tournament title, et cetera. So um, kind of got off on a tangent thinking about Grant Williams knocking down free throws. But, but, <laughs> but, the, but the reality is I like the Schofield comparison a little better. Uh, because speaking of another guy who who plays bigger than he is, but certainly can impact winning uh, with his, with his intelligence and just his ability to get in spots and and out hustle people and and Keontae, uh is doing that. So uh, you know, if you want the biggest overarching positive for this team as they head into the SEC Big Twelve Challenge, it's got to be 
this freshman class is as advertised and maybe even a little better. I, I would say even better right away, just because um, I, this, you know, I, my kind of thing with Noah Locke was, uh, you know, he, he played at a high school that wasn't a, wasn't a great team, doesn't play in a great league. And um, he did a whole lot there, but I kind of probably anticipated that um, he was probably going to morph from being, um, you know, a do it ever do it all kind of guy with his, uh, with his high school team to being probably more of a catch and shoot guy for Florida. And the thing is he obviously can catch and shoot at a high level, but um, he's been able to shoot off the bounce as well. And that's, um, that's really what makes, you know, what takes things from a good free throw shooter to a great free throw sh- or a three point shooter. And um, uh, so I'm looking up the free throw stat as I, uh, as I talk, so <laughs> I'm trying to chase you know, the one you were talking about. Uh, you but anyways, know. Yeah. But um <laughs> But yeah, so I, you know what, what I've expected that, like, that's just the thing is, you know, did I think Noah Locke was going to be good? I, I really did. And I thought he was going to be good as a freshman. Did I think he was going to be challenging Michael Frazier and Lee Humphrey for, you know, Florida's three point records? Uh, no, I didn't think he'd do that as a freshman, maybe as a junior or a senior. So that's crazy. And, you know, I was big on Nemhart. Lots of people were five star, um, of course. Um, but even Keontae Johnson, that's a guy that um, I think they're getting a lot more value early than even his, um, you know, his, his recruiting ranking would suggest. And obviously he was a top 100 guy, but um, you know, he's playing like a, he's playing like a fringy five-star right now with just because of that, that pure athleticism. So um, I do think that they're getting a little bit more um, than you could even have expected. Yeah. I think, I think with Keontae, there were, there were kind of hints of it, maybe more than even Locke. Cause I was with you, that evaluation of Locke was my, uh, pretty similar to my evaluation of him. But, you know, Keontae, at least in AAU games, late last year, really dominant all of a sudden. One of those guys that kind of took that, like, Devin Robinson leap. Um, mm. The same one that, that Devin took before he came to Florida, and people were, oh, Devin Robinson should have been a McDonald's All-American. and You know, okay, whatever. But Keontae, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he is – he played above his recruiting ranking towards the end of his recruitment. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think that anybody thought he'd be, he'd be starting. Now, some of that of course speaks to <laughs> the yes. struggles of Florida's upper class and have said, so it's not all these, these, some of this is these freshmen have been thrust into these roles. Uh, the good news is that, you know, that, that the freshmen at least have been up, have been up to it. Oh yeah, that uh, which it makes you just wonder. I mean, if these freshmen were not excellent, just um, I mean, just think about where this team would be. You know what I mean? Oh. Like if they were even playing average relative to their recruiting oh. rankings, you know, like this this would be a, this would be a really bad scene. So the fact they've been playing above that is <laughs> has been awesome. And yeah, um, you're correct about the uh, the uh, Joakim Noah kind of free throw set. He has so he also has the record for free throws made in a game in that game with 19 and um, and for attempted. <laughs> Um, with 22. So that was, uh, you were correct on that, um, you know, that free throw set that I had to look with, um, <laughs> to look at for a long time to find. <laughs> well, you know what? And I, I, I applaud you for doing so because it is difficult to imagine Joe Kim Noah just knocking down like 16 free throws in a row, but, but it happened. No, that, I know. I've got to try to see if there's film of that because, I mean, just, <laughs> just imagining the ball s- spinning like a globe but finding twine every time would be so, so frustrating for, the other, for Georgia. <laughs> yeah, so uh, that, that was – and it was, it was a really good game. It was a home game, and you kind of felt like, man, these, these guys, these, uh, these sophomores are pretty good. They just – they deliver. Um, and, and that was the deal. So – uh, Florida heads into the, the SEC Big 12 Challenge, and, and more than any game this season, I'm having a tough time getting a read on this game, except for this. Uh, and Mike White hinted at it in the post-game conference, press conference, when he was very happy, but then said, we as coaches have to do a better job of finding other ways to score. I think Florida has to find other ways to score than the three-point jump shot against TCU because TCU is a terrific perimeter defense team. Right, and uh, that obviously presents quite a challenge for that for the Gators, <laughs> especially coming off a game where you shoot almost fifty percent from the three-point line. Um, but I mean, the thing about the three-point shot is uh, is three-point shots. The opportunities to shoot threes just always happen in the game of basketball. Um, you could really not hunt them, not run guys off screens. And you're probably still going to have, you know, 15 or 16 or 17 good looks at, at the three-point line within a game. So uh, the thing is that I don't think Florida needs to just um, 
totally hunt these looks uh, as much as maybe some people have been talking about just because, you know, you, you don't have to hunt three point shots for them to, to happen in, in basketball. And the other thing too, is I think good three point shots are, are the results of, of just, you know, good offense, no matter what that is from getting the defense moving side to side, ideally from getting the ball inside and then out, which is obviously a big struggle for this team. Um, but yeah, you know, getting a read on it, I'm not exactly sure how, uh, how Florida is, is going to do that. Um, you know, I like the perimeter defenders for, for TCU, just like you said. I think they're they're really high quality, and I even think that um, they've got some pretty good uh, pretty good defense on the inside with JD Miller and um, there's a, fre- a couple freshmen down there that are that are big guys that um, you know I'm not expecting you know not expecting Kavarius Hayes to be able to go and uh, get a bunch of post up points on it. So um, yeah, really good defensive team and um, a team that also moves the bar really well offensively. And uh, I think the TCU is a lot better than. Um, you know, they, you know, they, they lost to Kansas that happens. They lost to Oklahoma um, the night after. And I think that a lot of people saw that as, as TCU, uh, you know, kind of going on a little bit of a slide, but I mean, those are two really good basketball teams. And then, you know, they lost Jalen Fisher, their point guard, and then lost to Kansas state, who I think is a good team defensively. So um, you know what, I I think that, I think TCU is a really quality team and this is going to be tough. Yeah. It's uh, it's a new venue. Um, So what I've, from what I've heard, uh, a, a pretty loud place, a lot like Florida. The students are right on top of the, uh, the floor. Um, so a little bit like the Auburn and Florida setups um, in that regard. Uh, and, and, you know, they, they, they are dealing with, with some changes. Uh, Jalen Fisher was their, was their point guard and, and is gone, not just hurt left the program right which is <laughs> i think really strange yes um, but they do have a senior named alex robinson whose game i love he's kind of a wizard uh, yeah. <laughs> he, he does some crazy stuff on the basketball court if you ever if you've ever watched tcu play but if you haven't uh go to youtube and just, just watch some youtube video alex robinson he can make some some wild uh he can make some wild plays and he takes some kind of off balance, ridiculous shots. I don't really know who it reminds me of cause he's not really a showboat. Um, but, but you know, a really good basketball player. Yeah. Well, uh, one thing that's just crazy is, uh, you know, you think about how well that, um, just how well Andrew Nemhart passes the ball and you think about, you know, obviously he doesn't always have the best, you know, interior finishing options or anything to pass to, but generally speaking, you know, he's an awesome passer. And I mean, he's at, you know, 6.1 assists per game. And then you've got, um, you've got Alex Robinson and he's averaging 7.9 assists per game, which is just <laughs> crazy to think that someone could be, you know, averaging that many more assists than Adrian Emhart when you, you know, watch every second that Adrian Emhart plays. But yeah, I, I think he's, uh, he's going to be a problem. Um, just kind of in the way that uh, that defense kind of broke down in that first half against Texas A&M by just that first kind of dribble penetration. Um, I'm pretty nervous that that could be uh, just kind of the thing that, that kicks things off for um, that kicks things off for, for TCU is just if Alex Robinson can get in the paint, um, he either has the ability to finish or draw contact and get fouled or, um, or kick it out to a lot of good shooters. So that's definitely going to be an issue. And uh, I'm, I am really interested to see if Florida can kind of, um, can kind of do uh, whether they'll try that one, three, one kind of just to get the ball out of his hand at the start of possessions, um, whether they'll play a little bit more straight up man and maybe try to get uh, maybe try to get Kayvon Allen to guard him. Um, that could work out too. Uh, but uh, yeah, a, a team that's uh, that's really efficient with a lot of kind of balanced scoring. Yeah. And you know, uh, the one thing I'll say about, about Robinson that, that people might, you know, find interesting is that since the Jalen Fisher injury, um, he had been averaging only oh, – he, well, I say only. He'd been averaging three turnovers a game. I guess we Florida fans got so spoiled with Chris Chioso, he just <laughs> never turned the ball over. Um, <laughs> and uh, he's had 28 turnovers in, in the six games without uh, Jalen Fisher that, that TCU has played, including uh, eight against Kansas State, who's probably the most comparable defensive team they've played to Florida. So you can turn him over. That's why – I say he tries to make crazy plays sometimes, and, and a lot of times it works. He, you know, he's a high-risk, high-reward guy. Um, and, you know, when you average eight assists a game but, and three-and-a-half turnovers, you, you kind of see that on, on the paper too. Right, and, you know, if, he, if Florida can turn him over, that could be uh, what they need to get some easy buckets. 
Um, I'm just looking at it since you were talking about some, obviously, Florida's reliance on the three-point shot and TCU's perimeter defense. Um, yeah, TCU is ninth in the country in defensive three-point percentage, so they're only allowing teams to shoot 27.7% from the three-point line. And um, from Ken Palm's um, point distribution stat, which I think is really interesting, um, only 24.7% of opposing teams – uh, points are coming from the three-point line, which is 336. So teams are just not able to get that many um, to get that many threes off against against TCU, and uh, they're not converting them a lot. And um, if you want to look at Florida's reliance on the three-point line, 40% of their points uh, come from the three-point line, which is 17th in the country. So um, this is uh, this is going to be a challenge for Florida if they really rely on the three-point line against the team that is uh, really really good at defending it. Yep. Uh, the one thing I'll say about, about TCU, and this will be interesting, I mean, this is where the loss of Keith Stone actually kind of hurts Florida even more, is because this is basically a six-man rotation. Now, they've extended – it was sort of a seven-man team, which is like the classic Mike Krzyzewski team, right? Like, I got my seven guys. Uh, <laughs> let's go. And um, Because that's how, that's how Kay used to win in the old days before, like, he got everyone and done he wanted. Um and, and, you know, Jamie Dixon, they don't play really more than, more than six guys, seven. R.J. Nimhard, no relation, has uh, been the guy that, that has benefited the most from the departure of Fisher because they've needed somebody else to handle the ball from what I can see uh, statistically. But last couple of games, their starters play heavy minutes, 30-plus, all five guys. Yeah, they've had some – well, it's crazy because, I mean, they've had – I think they've had three other guys transfer out um, – not even just Fisher. So they've, uh, they just don't have right. a lot of dudes just like, you know, Florida's got injuries, injuries. Um, yeah. They've just had tons of guys transfer out, which is obviously I'm um, going back to how weird, um, you know, Jalen Fisher's uh, kind of injury and transferring <laughs> out is they've had a bunch of other guys, including Kate and Archie, which I'm pretty sure Florida was interested in um, out of high school. But uh, yeah, if Florida can, uh, can, you know, if they do accelerate the pace a little bit, uh, maybe it gets into a situation where, uh, you know, the team with the better conditioning wins or, uh, but uh, it's, you know, in TCU, you have a team that uh, uh, doesn't like to play, you know, they're kind of middle of the pack in terms of pace. So I don't think there's, uh, you know, much to know there if they're trying to play particularly slow or, or, or fast or anything, but um, yeah, but whenever there's uh, there's tight rotations, foul trouble always comes into play as well. And um, if there's a, you know, you always, it always seems like the refs kind of try to establish themselves early and maybe call a few more fouls early in the first half. So if Florida can win those first couple minutes and uh, just in terms of uh, moving the ball up and down and, and, uh, and forcing some more fouls on TCU, uh, they could get things uh, pretty interesting for that TCU rotation. Yeah. Kuatna is a guy who uh, is a really nice pick and pop player that, that they had used for about 20 minutes a game before all the departures and, and he's been 30 minutes plus since and actually hasn't been quite as effective. So kind of speaks to what Eric was talking about earlier on the show, which is that, you know, it's not optimal. I mean, no matter how, how well conditioned you are now, Jamie Dixon's teams uh, have, have historically been known for, for being pretty, pretty fit. And, you know, when you think of his pit teams, you just think of waves of defense, right? And so they, they, uh, they always have defended well. This team was in the top 60 in tempo, which is really high for a Dixon team. They're down to 84, I think, by necessity. Well, I think that – okay, so this is just like my kind of thing, but about Ken Palm, I don't really look yeah. at the – I don't really look at the, uh, the tempo stat. I just look at the average possession length because I think that – because, I mean, if you look at them as the 84th tempo team, you probably have – you probably think they're like, oh, they play pretty fast. But then you see that their average possession length is 156. Right. So right, that's right. – so to me, looking at those is always a little bit more of an accurate um, – whereas, uh, you know, defensively, um, their, their, uh, their average possessions are 16.7 per second, which is 64th in the country. So um, – which I – which is very interesting that um, – That is interesting. Which is – but uh, so once again, they're, they're allowing quick possessions when they're on defense, but they're not, you know, being 156 in the country in um, possession like offensively means that it's not like they're, you know, looking to get the first – a shot up in the first eight seconds. So, so I always look at the possession like numbers for a little bit more accurate assessment of just like how a team plays, but I am very interested to see that they have um, pretty short defensive possessions. So, um, and it's not like they turn you over particularly quickly. Uh, so it's not like, um, you know, they're heating teams up by playing really high pressure. So, um, 
yeah, I wonder if, um, you know, maybe that means that they allow half decent looks and teams are just missing them. And um, because it's, <laughs> you know, if you look at a lot of the, a lot of the teams that have faster, um, um, you know, that have shorter defensive possessions, it usually means that they're giving up good shots because, um, you know, if, if a possession's fast, it usually means that someone found a shot really early. And, um, you know, if you look at the opposite side of that, Florida is uh, uh, teams, Florida defensively has uh, the 351st longest possessions, meaning that, you know, Florida's playing really good defense to me. So yeah. uh, that'll be kind of interesting to see in, in person when, when Florida plays them. So 11 a.m. start. Uh, Mike White is 3-0 in the SEC Big 12 Challenge, including uh, a couple of quadrant one wins. He can get another one uh saturday which florida's resume needs it so um <laughs> you get, we get back to this point i think i've i've made on the last couple of shows florida in this this seven game stretch they've won the two games they had to have you know the the, the ones you could not lose they won um so now really five consecutive resume opportunities yeah, absolutely, and uh, I the, the the chance to get one against TCU is big too because the way that the way the Big Twelve is with uh you know they don't have a lot of teams they don't really have a bottom of their league it's it's it just kind of every team is good which always seems to me in, in the metrics that every Big Twelve team to me is like artificially a little bit higher than they probably should be which means a win over a, a you know a team like TCU is is probably going to carry a whole lot of weight so um, especially on the road so that's big and. Yeah, then like you mentioned, Ole Miss, Kentucky, Auburn, Tennessee. Uh, you know that's a tough gauntlet, but also um, lots of opportunities. And and uh, this this team, you know, they've kind of they're they're solid in the metrics. Um, you know, they haven't taken uh, too many kind of crushing losses with that South Carolina one looking not as bad as they continue to win games. Um, but it's time for them to get a resume win and uh, to be able to do that against uh, against the TCU or a Kentucky or a Auburn, or if they can somehow steal one of Tennessee on the road, uh, things will really change for this team in perception. So it'll be a fun stretch. So here's the, uh, here's the SEC Big 12 challenge games. Um, obviously, Florida TCU kicks the whole thing off at, at noon on, uh, on Saturday that that game uh, televised on ESPN2. Uh, also at noon, Alabama-Baylor. Um, Iowa State at Ole Miss. The Baylor-Alabama game is in Waco. Uh, South Carolina at Oklahoma State, which is kind of an interesting one because Oklahoma State has some scalps, but also like some awful losses. So they're like a really hard team to figure out. <laughs> um, Texas-Georgia at 2 o'clock, I think. The the heat. I don't want to say that that Shaka Smart is on the hot seat, but there there's certainly some rumbling. In uh, Shaka Smart Twitter is is about as lit as Mike White Twitter, um, <laughs> and and maybe uh, more justified yeah. to be to be that lit. That's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, Kansas State at Texas A and M um, at two o'clock. Uh, then a four o'clock game. West Virginia goes to Knoxville, which before the season. Looked like an amazing game. Now looks like a mismatch because of no Kanate. Uh, Vanderbilt travels to Norman to play Oklahoma. Kansas at Kentucky. And then uh, Arkansas-Texas Tech to close thing off. Which, which of those many, many matchups that I've just rattled off, I mean, what, what appeals to you the most? Um, I mean, the cop-out answer would be Kentucky and Kansas. And um, just also just <laughs> because if, if Kentucky were to get that win, it would be big for the SEC. And obviously – um, you know, that'd be a fun, that, that, that would just be the most kind of probably fun game to watch. But um, I think that's because uh, a lot of these games actually kind of look like they, you know, shouldn't be close, you know, like, right. you know, like Tennessee and West Virginia, that shouldn't be close. Texas Tech really should just absolutely dominate Arkansas. Um, you know, like, uh, you know, Kansas State should really beat Texas A&M handily. So uh, even though, you know, we saw maybe a different Texas A&M team, but, um, you know, I think Ole Miss and, uh, and Iowa State is probably going to be my most, uh, the one I think might be the most interesting other than, um, you know, other than Florida TCU, which will have most of my attention. But yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to Ole Miss and, and uh, Iowa State. And that's when that I think Iowa State, um, I, I'm interested to see how they match up because Iowa State has had a lot of uh, a lot of injuries. Uh, Liddell Wigginson's just getting back, um, but uh, you know Iowa State's a team that I really like their I really like their guards and uh, Ole Miss. I really like their guards, so I think that that's going to be uh, just a really really fun matchup. And um, uh, Ole Miss has home court, so that's uh, that could be big, and that would be a big win for the SEC. And um, I will also say um, about just the number of teams in the in the in the Big Twelve, it does make this challenge always a little bit unfortunate because. 
Um, you know, I do think this challenge would look a whole lot different if, um, you know, because Mississippi State isn't playing and, um, yeah, and, Auburn. and Auburn and even LSU. Yeah. I mean, if you if you pot like like right now, I've got I'm going to I'm going to ask you this question as well. But as I look at it, I think that this is uh, is six four in favor of, of Big Twelve in my prediction. But I mean, if you bumped out, you know, some of the, you know, if you bumped out the worst teams from the SEC side and put Auburn and LSU and and Mississippi State in, you know, I think this could be easily seven three, you know, for the SEC. So uh, that is too bad from an SEC standpoint. Yeah, well, let me look at it. Um, well, I'll try to do that while I'm talking about why I think Alabama Baylor is really interesting. Um, and, and I'm going to, I'm actually going to, I'm going to record Alabama Baylor, uh, because, <laughs> because it's a, it, well, it's 45 versus 46 in Kimpom and 41 versus 51 in, in net. So wow. you're kind of, yeah. So you're, so you, what you have is you have a classic bubble game, right? Uh, Very and, much. and just a really huge opportunity for Avery Johnson's team, which, which has been playing pretty well to to get a big win on the road um and then you have a baylor team that's been playing pretty well so uh it's kind of cool because you get two teams that are hot and and both need uh big victories the other one is it's interesting and not just because florida lost them and oh bad loss and and it was a bad loss in my mind and whatever that that's not going to change this season um (laughs) but south carolina you know they should they should beat Oklahoma State. Like, go win that game. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's that's kind of my view on it. Yeah, that would be a bad loss, I think, for for South Carolina. Even though South Carolina's on the road, and I know Oklahoma State is somehow three and two in that league, but uh, yeah, I, I don't think they're very good. So um, that would be a big one, and um, that would all. Oh, what was the other one I was looking at? Oh, I was about to say something. But, um, no, I think that uh, the way that South Carolina is just um, has been playing well in the SEC, I think that it would just be uh, – I think it would be quite unfortunate if, um, you know, after the wins that South Carolina has gotten in the SEC, if they were to lose to Oklahoma State. I, I think that would be a bad one. Um, but um, uh, kind of other than that, um, I, I really do think they're going to be um, – you know, there's a couple duds, I think, but there's also going to be some uh, some really good games just kind of overall. And I think this is, a, this is hopefully a good chance for the uh, – for the SEC to kind of establish themselves as a, as a kind of one of the, as a better league than the big 12 um, just because, and I'll say it's better. And I know some people disagree, but I think that the fact that um, they do have fewer teams in the big 12, just like always artificially makes all their numbers look better. And yeah. um, so, so I always, um, I always think they're overrated. And um, if, you know, if maybe, you know, if Georgia can beat Texas or if, um, you know, if Vanderbilt beats Oklahoma out on the road, there'd be a couple of games like that that I would just love to just show that the SEC is is, is uh, kind of better. And you know, if the if they were to even make this um you know five five and, and equal it up, but without Auburn and and Mississippi State playing, I think that would look really good for the SEC. Yeah, and that's that's where I I got it at five four, and then the Florida game is my uh, my asterisk. So I think I think that would be pretty pretty good if, if it if it ends up five five you know it's a lot of pressure on the gators but i think um you know because i think Ole miss will win at home uh against iowa state so so i think uh i think that's one that they'll grab and, and i think south carolina will win at oklahoma state so i think i think you're talking about those victories there and you know i actually think it'll be interesting kentucky kansas will be interesting because kansas bill self will have that team ready to play but it's just Without their bigs, um, they're just, they just haven't been the same. Well, that could just be, you know, if it turns into one of those games that does have kind of the NCAA tournament feel and um, it turns into a grind, I, I do think I like Kentucky more in that game just because I do think Kentucky's, you know, just a little bit bigger, a little more athletic. Um, you know, I probably like, um, you know, I, I, I probably, I do like Kansas's backcourt a little bit more. I know that obviously it's, you know, can be a little young with Dotson, but, um, I, I, they, I think they probably have the advantage there, but, um, yeah, I think that, uh, Kentucky could just really, um, kind of overmatch physically in the front court. Yeah. But, but I do have Baylor beating Alabama in that, in that bubble game. I think Texas will win in Athens. Um, you know, it could be wrong. That, that the consistency thing has been the issue for Shaka in Austin and, uh, I can't imagine Kansas State will have much trouble, uh, although they're on the road. Tennessee will certainly win for the SEC. Um, and then, you know, yeah, I mean, Vanderbilt, Oklahoma, who knows? Uh, I think Texas Tech will beat Arkansas, but the Red Raiders are kind of scuffling a little bit right now. 
That's true. I did say that one was going to be a blowout, but um, that <laughs> it has the potential not to be a blowout, especially just because of the way um, Texas Tech plays. They kind of uh, they do play slow and kind of uh, allow the games to stay tight. So uh, that means that if Arkansas can have some of those shooters like Isaiah Joe get hot, uh, this could get really interesting. Yeah, but but I think uh, I think five four, and then the Florida TCU game kind of decides if the SEC gets a split. Which, as you've mentioned, you know probably your your third and your fourth best team aren't playing, uh, and maybe your fifth best team not playing. So that'd be pretty good for the SEC. I certainly think so. Um, and uh, yeah. Uh, I was going to say, like, you know, we don't normally get into the prediction game here too much, but, you know, you said it was going to be 5-4 plus the uh, Florida TCU game. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you, is it going to be a 5-5 or is it going to be a 6-4? What do you think by the end of, uh, the, end of the day? You know, I've, I've kind of waffled on this back and forth, but what I think I've decided is that Florida will win this game and they'll win Wednesday um, and get those two resume wins. And then uh, I think they'll lose to Kentucky. Now, that's just – based on what, what I've seen from Kentucky recently. Um, and, and I think if, if the Gators do that and they go 4-1 in that five-game stretch and then uh, come up for air by playing number one Tennessee on the road, <laughs> um, you know, that's, that's not bad. But, yeah, I, think, I just think it's, a, it's, a, it's an okay matchup for Florida uh, because, as, as you alluded to earlier in the week, TCU's kind of struggled against high-level defenses this year. Um, so maybe, maybe Florida can do that. Maybe they can turn uh, TCU over a little bit and, and finally grind out a close game. Yeah, I think so. And uh, I do think this would be a big, a big win for Florida. And I, I do think that TCU, despite, um, um, yeah, despite kind of losing some guys to transfer, I, I still think they're going to do really well in that league. And um, even though they have started a little bit slow, so that would be big. And um uh, you know, we talked to, we talked on the last podcast about how Mississippi um, by the metrics isn't as good as, uh, uh, as a lot of people would, uh, would think. And since then Mississippi is Ole Miss has dropped to 37th in Ken Palm. So, um, you know, that's uh, so far, you know, for Florida to play them right now, Ken Palm has a predicted five point win for the Gators. Um, so, I mean, yeah, you beat TCU, you got a real good shot at, uh, at, at Ole Miss at home. And then um, obviously you've got Kentucky at home and Florida's played Kentucky. Well, these last, uh, these last few, um, these last few matchups, these last few years. And uh, though, um, you know, Florida's depleted front court is a pretty scary proposition against Kentucky, uh, you know, at home, see what happens. Yep, absolutely. So we'll be back uh, to talk about this one uh, on the back end. We have um, a couple days in between uh, this and, and uh, the Ole Miss game and a big week at home for the Gators who finish up here. This is their fourth game on the road in, in five, right? So they finally uh, head – or they're, no, they're third and four, but still. Um, a lot of road games for Florida. They finally get to, to come.